The title of the message today is, Why Does God Let Bad Things Happen? Some of us have may have heard that question or the arguments surrounding it as called the, quote, problem of evil. Some people bring it up as a reason to not believe in God. I've heard it many times. I don't know about you. People would say, well, if there is a God and he's good and he's in control, why? And then they'll list all the things that they've been through or the things they see on the news or something they know somebody has experienced. I even had one guy say to me, you know, if there is a God, I'm mad at him. And if I ever get to see him, I've got questions. And I have to say that I get it. I've been in that place where I've wondered to myself, what is going on here? I want to believe God is good. The Bible tells me that. I want to believe that God's in control. The Bible tells me that too. I want to believe God loves me. The Bible tells me that too. But here's some circumstances right over here that challenge those truths. If he's good, then why? If he's in control, then why? If he loves me, then why? What is going on here? Those are hard questions. Job, as we've just read, and as we talked about last week, has been through some terrible circumstances. Frightening circumstances. All his assets, all his goods, all his wealth, gone in a day. His entire family, which I guess I need to repent from you for, before you guys. Uh, last week, I, I pointed out, as the scripture says, that he had seven sons and three daughters. And I told you that added up to nine. I apologize. That adds up to ten. I recognize that. They didn't teach math in seminary. That's all I can tell you. But I didn't know how to do that. Someone had to point that out to me. <laughs> Your pastor can count. It's okay. That's I'm just... I was just too excited about other details last week, and it's kind of hopped over that one. Anyway, 10 kids, gone. On the same day, all his wealth is gone. In fact, as you read Job 1 and 2, you see that he finds out all about that within five minutes. As one servant comes to tell him, hey, all your camels are dead. Another guy, hey, all your sheep got stolen. Another one shows up, hey, all this stuff is gone too. And then finally, hey, all your kids died. A tornado hit the house. They were all in there. They're all dead. Bang, 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 bang. All at once. So he does what a man in the ancient Near East would do when they grieve. They rip their robes, tear the seams. So it looks like he's undone. It's a symbol of the internal experience of brokenness and grief. He sat in the ashes, put ashes on top of his head. But that wasn't all. He then broke out in boils from head to toe. Like I asked you guys last week, who's had one boil? I have. I have not been covered from here down to there in boils. I can't even imagine. And he sat in the ashes with a broken part of a pot scraping the scabs. Dogs coming up and looking at him, I'm sure. All these terrible circumstances. His wife saying, you know, you might as well just curse God and die. Thanks, honey. Love you too. 
as he sits there in this agony and internal turmoil. Like Jubal said, I doubt any of us have dealt with that bad of a set of circumstances, though I am willing to bet that all of us have some degree, maybe are right now, in some level of suffering, not like Job. (laughs) And he sat there and he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the scripture says that he did not curse God and did not sin with his lips as he sat there. He could have asked the problem of, of evil question more than anyone. And in fact, he ends up doing so. And if you're with me in Job, I'm going to ask you to go to chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. We read this last week, but I want to start here because it's important. As he's sitting there alone in the ashes, three friends arrive. Starting at verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all the evil that had come upon him, they came each to his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And they came and saw him from a distance, and they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. Excuse me. And no one spoke a word to them, to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Notice this. Their families did not die. Their money was fine. If they had sheep and camels and goats or whatever they had, nothing had happened to them. But they came and ripped their robes and put dust on their head and sat with him in the ashes. Why? Because that's friendship. That's fellowship. Paul talks about it in Romans 12, that great chapter that says, if you've been changed by Jesus, then this is how your life would live. Fifteen verses into that argument, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. When you suffer, I suffer. When you're having a great time, I'm there with you and I'm happy for you. This is what fellowship is. A few weeks ago, we talked about fellowship being far more than just sharing meals together. What it is, the meals are good and the times that we gather are good because they ought to be springboards to which we get involved into each other's lives. And to the degree that when you have a great thing happen to you, I'm happy for you and I show it. But when something terrible happens to you, I'm sad for you and I'm with you in the suffering. And I react as if it's happening to me too. This is what friendship's about. This is what fellowship is about. This is what the church family ought to be pursuing with each other. And I'm grateful that many people do that here. Let's keep it up. Let's do it all the more. Let's do more than, oh man, I'm sorry that happened to you. I'll pray for you. But let's sit with each other. Let's be there for each other. What does that mean? Those are nice cliche words. You know, we we could even say that. I'm here for you. What does that mean? And then I leave. (laughs) What does that mean? I'm here for you. I'm there for you. Whatever that, 
What it means is I show up and I take the time. It means that I show the real sympathy. Look at these guys. This is amazing to me. They sat in silence for seven days. Some of us can't handle five minutes of silence. (laughs) Now that I'm a parent of two small children, I've learned to enjoy silence a lot more than I used to. But these guys were content to sit with this guy for seven straight days and say nothing. Just be present. You know, if you're like me, you get nervous. I used to get nervous about going to see somebody who's gone through something terrible. The question that comes to my mind, maybe it can be yours, what am I going to say? This thing that happened to them is so terrible. How can I, how can I be, say anything helpful? I can't say, oh, it's not that bad. It, it is that bad. <laughs> oh, it'll be okay. I don't know when it's going to be okay. <laughs> I understand. No, I don't. <laughs> Most of us don't understand when someone else has gone through something, what exactly it's like to be in their shoes at that moment. So that phrase can actually be kind of harmful. So what do I do? Take a lesson. You don't have to say anything. In fact, as a pastor, I've gone and visited people in situations that were terrifying or scary or painful or whatever. And you know what? Anytime anyone's ever thanked me for showing up, they have never thanked me for anything I've said. They just thank me for being there. That's really all you need to do. Show up. Show up. Just be there. That's what people appreciate. Help in whatever tangible way is needed. Provide a meal. Provide some company. Just sit there. Don't be afraid to feel. Show that you sympathize. Any one of us could do that, and we ought to do that for each other. Now, some of you are already ahead of me, though, because you know the Bible and you know this story. But Dan, that's not how this continues to go, and you're absolutely right. These guys get it right for the first week. They just sit there until Job opens his mouth and says everything that Jubal just read to you. And I'm not going to read it for you again, but I will provide you a very brief summary. I wish I was never born. That's what Job says. And I can't fault him for that. I can't understand what it's like to go through what he's gone through. And basically he said, you know what, if this is life, I don't want it. I'm out. In fact, I wish it never started. I wish I was stillborn. I wish I never came out of the womb alive. Whatever. I curse the day I was born. And while we might recoil at that a little bit, and if we heard someone saying that, our instant response might be to say, oh, no, 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 you're a great person. I love you. I'm glad you were born. That person's not there <laughs> right then. They're in the midst of some serious agony. And so, like I said last week when I said we ought to be more real with each other in our pain, the whole ripping of clothing is a symbol, an outward symbol, so people can see I am in a place right now, of, of ba- a bad place. I'd like to point out a slightly controversial thing. Lament is okay. Lament is okay. It is okay to not be okay in certain circumstances. You, it is right to be deeply sad. I've, I've had people in my life when I was really sad to say, hey, 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 it's okay. And I'm like, no, it's not. I mean, yes, yes, okay. I believe God is still king. Amen. God's in charge. But right now, this really hurts. Can you imagine if we did this with physical stuff? 
A lot of you heard the story, and you're probably sick of it, but here it goes again. I'm on the back of his Amazon truck. I lose my balance. I recognize I'm either going down on my back or on my feet. I choose feet, and I step off. I land, and I shatter this ankle. My foot was turned sideways. It was obvious. I'm laying there screaming. And the driver came running back to see what was wrong. And he said, hey, stop yelling. It's going to be fine. Quit your whining. Jesus is king. Amen? Amen, Dan? No. He came running up and said, dude, your foot looks weird. And I said, it feels weird. (laughs) Call somebody. He said, yeah, 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 I'm on it. And then he put his jacket on me because I started going into shock. You know, you get those shakies, right? He put his jacket on me. He just kind of put his hand on me and he called the right people and firemen came pretty soon and I got taken care of. But he didn't chide me or tell me I was doing the wrong thing for expressing my physical agony because it hurt. And yet sometimes we do that when someone's in emotional pain. Like something happens, and they're reacting in their pain, and we say, hey, hey, it's going to be fine. We dudes do this more often. We have phrases like, dude, man up, come on. And sometimes we're not ready for that. Sometimes we just need to feel. And if you're thinking, Dan, this verse, the the chapter 3 of Job is not there for us, It's Yeah, narratively, it's there for us just to see where Job is. But I invite you to look through many of the Psalms. And you can find a whole category of Psalms that are lament Psalms. In which the psalmist is just expressing pain to God. And doesn't God invite us to bring our pain to him? He can take it. To bring our suffering, our cares, our concerns to him. May I also point out that there's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations? It's there. There's a place for this. There's a place for us to express our pain. Do we stay in pain for the rest of our life? There's growth to happen. Yeah, I I agree with you. We don't sit there. But there's a time when we're there. There's nothing wrong with being there. Maybe you guys don't feel this way, but I've been in places and amongst communities where it kind of you know, I say, I don't know if you guys mean this, but it sounds like you think it's a sin to be sad. It is not. What does it say about Jesus? That he was acquainted with our grief. A man of sorrows, right? When suffering happens, it's okay to be honest about that. But here is where things go wrong. His friends hear the sadness of Job. They hear his internal suffering and what he's saying. I I don't want to be alive. I wish this never happened. Instead of saying, hey man, I get it. What can we do to help? They begin arguing with him. (laughs) They begin trying to explain. They say, it's as if they all looked at each other and said, okay, here we go. This is what we agreed on. When he starts talking about how sad he is, we're going to tell him why this stuff happened and how to fix it. This is going to be great. We are going to bless his socks off. This is going to be amazing. And what happens is a 28-chapter cycle. Have you read the book of Job? You know this. A 28-chapter cycle of dense Hebrew poetry in which 
they argue about this question. Why do bad things happen? And here comes this cycle. It's very repetitious. So today we're not going to read through every bit of it, but I'm going to present it to you and talk about the implications of what these guys are saying. And that first bullet there in this cycle of argument is this. The friends tell Job, God is punishing you. God is punishing you for what or for something you did. You may, I've never said this to my kids, but I have a friend who did, and it cracked me up when he did it. Daddy, why is it raining? Oh, God's crying. Why is God crying? Must have been something you did. you imagine telling your kid that? <laughs> Worse yet, could you imagine talking to someone who has lost what Job has lost and saying, hey, you know what? You must have done something for God to be doing this to you. But this is exactly what they say. Chapter 4, verse 1, Eliphaz starts it. Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? How can I, how can I not respond, Job? Behold, you have instructed many and strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. It's kind of harsh. Hey, man, you've helped other people when they're suffering, and now you're suffering, and you can't handle it? That's literally what he's saying. You can't handle it? Come on. Stop your lamenting. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that has in, is innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity sow trouble and reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and the blast of his anger they are consumed. And he goes on to metaphorically talk about basically this point. When people do evil things, God punishes them. So let's treat that like a math equation. I know I'm not that great at math. I already confessed that, but let's work with me here. Do bad. So if you do bad things, God punishes. So if you're suffering... God must be punishing. Therefore, you must have done bad things. See what they're saying? That's their assumption about how the world works. And these three friends are going to represent the ancient idea of that being how the world works. God is just. Amen. I agree. God is just. Okay. God always operates justly, they're saying. Blessing good people and cursing the bad people. So if you're doing well, if life is good, if everything's where it needs to be, God must be rewarding you. You must be doing it. You're pulling it off. This is cool. High five. But if you are suffering, then God must be punishing you for something. Now, we can sit here and chuckle if we want and say, those ancient people, so simple, so minimalistic. Life is so much more complex. Hey, we do the same stuff. We do the same stuff. Haven't you thought or wondered or maybe even said when everything's going right for somebody, oh man, God must be blessing you. You must have done something right. Or maybe wondered to yourself if everything's going right. Oh, I must have done something. I must be getting it. I must be nailing it at life. 
This is it. Or rather, when things aren't working out, we might say, and this might be correct, hey, maybe God doesn't want you to have that, whatever it is. Maybe God is withholding that for a reason. But then imply, maybe you need to fix something in your life. One example is this. Crystal and I were married for 10 full years and did not have kids for that 10 years. And we wondered about that. That wasn't a lot of fun. And I remember talking to somebody in the lobby of our church who was visiting, but we knew them from another context. And it was one of those people who was like, we've got 10 kids and we want 10 more. You guys know anybody like that? So that's what this family was like. And, and so they had all the kids, okay? And the mom and I were talking. And I made some kind of joke about a kid being too loud. And it was just a joke. But I heard her mutter, well, maybe that's why you don't have any kids, and walked off from me. I was like, oh, lady. <laughs> I, I withheld myself from physical violence. It was hard, <laughs> but I did it. <laughs> Jesus stopped me, amen? So <laughs> I was like, girl, don't you say that. She was literally saying, you would be a bad parent if you were, so God is withholding you. <laughs> oh, it's that simple, really? Okay. You're not in the right place for God to bless you that way. Therefore, God's not going to. I'm not saying that never happens, but to take that as a general rule of life. Man, I've never reached this point in my job. Well, maybe you haven't earned it yet, and God is not going to bless you with it yet. I haven't achieved this at school. I haven't found romance in my life or whatever it is. We all come up with these things that we're seeking and desire and maybe even pray for and we work on, and then it doesn't happen. And so some people say, well... Maybe God's trying to teach you something. And my, while that might be true, how do we know? I'll get more into that a little bit later, but it's easy for us to try to run and get answers quickly and simply. That relationship didn't work out. Well, maybe that isn't the right person for you, and maybe you would have done evil, and this would have We start stacking up reasons to try to make things make sense, and sometimes when we really think about what we're saying, you could boil it down to this. That would have been sinful in God stopping you. And that's not always the case. We see, think about it this way, we see bad people with wealth. Have you ever noticed bad people that are rich? There are some very bad people in this world. Have you observed this? And some of them are very, very, very wealthy and have what we might define as the American dream, everything that they would want. And what do we instinctively think? That is not fair. That is not right. And vice versa. People who are really, really, really good people who are poor and don't have everything that you think that they might deserve. And you say that also is not fair. What are we saying? We're saying that God ought to, in this life, bless the good people with everything that we think they deserve and curse the bad people with everything that they deserve because it's backwards right now. As if God doesn't know. There's another book in the collection that's right in the middle of the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. Anybody ever read Ecclesiastes? It's a great book. Because God, through the writer, is expressing that very thing. Sometimes what we think is fair and unfair doesn't work out that way. This world doesn't seem to be like that. These guys are coming at it like this. No, it ought to be like that. And that is, in fact, how God works. Therefore, if you're going through stuff, I can put the blame at your feet. 
The book of Proverbs and the book of Psalms admittedly have some general statements that are simple, that seem to say, do good, get blessed, be stupid, get cursed. But here in this book, we see a man who even God pointed out as, this is the best that humans have to offer, going through the worst possible pain. Which brings Job to his response. And this is how this cycle goes. One of the friends, in this case Eliphaz, says, you must deserve this. And Job comes back with more lament and claims of innocence. More lamenting and claims of innocence. He laments some more, he maintains his innocence, and then he laments even more. And then another friend responds to that. So Job says, more lamenting, I wish I was dead, I wish I wasn't alive, I wish this didn't happen to me, and then I'm innocent, I don't deserve any of this. What did I do? And then the friends come back. Just repent and things will get better. Chapter 8, verse 1. Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind. Ever been in a business meeting where you wanted to raise your hand and ask that same question? (laughs) How long are you going to keep talking? Believe me, uh, I've been out with many people and I've had great conversations, but my little kids are like, How long is this going to keep going? Build out the shoe out. How long will you say this in the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice? No. Or do the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. This is even better. Maybe your kids deserved it. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a great thing to say to somebody whose kids are dead. Oh, maybe they deserved it. He has delivered them in the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy... If you are pure and upright, surely he will rouse himself for you and restore you to your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days would be very great. So maybe you didn't deserve it, Joe, but your kids might have. And if you just repent, maybe you did something, and you make sure you're right with God, God will bless you back and everything will be fine. It's that simple. Because God is just, and this is how he operates. Job responds to that. God is hurting me for no reason. God is hurting me for no reason. God is just. Yes, I can't argue with that, he says. But he's unreachable, apparently. And he's giving the world over to evil for for no reason. He's letting the evil happen. I'm innocent. God, he starts addressing God in these next chapters. Stop oppressing me. Isn't that an interesting thing to say? Oppression is unjust. He's saying to God, don't oppress me anymore. And finally, Zophar, the last friend, he weighs in with one of the best responses so far. Chapter 11, verse 1. Zophar the Amathite answered and said, Should a multiple of words go, a multitude, excuse me, of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? You say my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, and that he should tell you the excuse me, for he is manifold in understanding. No, here it is, this is great. No, that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, Job, you probably deserve worse than what you got. So Job, 
I want to die. Friend comes in. You must have done something. I'm innocent. Still want to die. Another friend. You should just repent and everything will be better. I'm innocent. I want, you know, God is oppressing me. He must be giving the world over to evil because I can't understand it because Job is assuming too that God operates on this justice thing and it doesn't make sense that pain is happening to him. And then the last friend, buddy, you deserve worse. That's your next bullet. You, the friend saying, you probably deserve worse. If God came, he'd show you just how bad you are. So repent and everything will be fine. He continues to argue. And that's why I love Job 12.1. Job answered and said, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. <laughs> He's saying, you guys think you've got it all. It's sarcasm. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, he knows everything you guys are saying. I, I know all this stuff, guys. See, he's operating. That's why he's freaking out. He's operating from this idea, this assumption that God's justice is simple. He blesses good, curses bad. I'm being cursed. This isn't right. I'm innocent, he says. And I hope God will prove my innocence and explain my suffering. He wants God. He believes that God is just. He believes that God did this to him. And he hopes God will demonstrate his innocence and explain all this. And this goes on for two more cycles. That first cycle I just overviewed with you was chapters 4 through 14 of long, repetitive Hebrew poetry, making the points that I just showed you. The second cycle is chapter 15 to 21, and the third cycle is chapter 22 through 28. And while we're not going to get into detail, I encourage you to read it, and you will see that it just keeps getting nastier and nastier and nastier. What do I mean? The friends start actually making up sins <laughs> that Job may have done and accusing him, and telling him to repent, and actually going so far as to say that he has no fear of God at all, or love for God in his heart. Eliphaz, for example, in chapter 22, 5 through 11, he says, Is not your evil abundant? <laughs> there is no end to your iniquities, for you have exacted pledges from your brothers for nothing, and stripped the naked of, your, of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink. You have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man live in it. And you have sent widows away empty. And the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you. And a sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood water covers you. Like was said to me, like was said to some people, and sometimes we have may have said it without realizing, again, this is happening because you brought it on yourself in some way. But these guys are starting to get specific. Job begins to wonder on his part if God runs the world justly at all or is just himself. In, in chapter 9, go back a little bit. He says, all is one. Therefore, I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. He's saying that about God. The earth is given to the hand of the wicked, and he covers the face of its judges. If it is not he, then who? Who is it? Yet at the same time, he's hoping God will come in and fix all this. In chapter 19, 23, he says, Oh, that my words were written. Well, he got his wish there, didn't he? We're reading them now. 
Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin is thus destroyed and my flesh, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. See what he's saying? He's saying God is just and he will come and he will redeem and he will save. But at the same time, he's also saying in other places that God is just letting evil run rampant and doesn't seem to care and is in fact oppressing me. Is it fair to say that Job is on an emotional roller coaster right now? Up, down, round and round. Is This is what happens when our emotions lead the way. They start spinning us in circles. And it doesn't help. He's got three friends. Let me just let me relabel the friends, okay? Three antagonists over here <laughs> that are pestering him and telling him he's an evil windbag and needs to shut up and repent and everything will be fine. So around and round and round we go through these chapters. And he finishes his statements with a sign-off in chapter 31, verse 35. He goes, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. See what he's saying? He's demanding that God bring the reason for his suffering. Bring the receipts, God. Let me see them. Why is this transaction happening this way? Because I've done all my life to honor you and give you glory. Therefore, I should be right to expect that this stuff that happened would not happen. Yet it has. Therefore, let's talk it out, God. Come to the table. He's given up on getting comfort from his friends, and rightly so, his adversaries. And they give up trying to convince him that he's a rotten sinner because he's not having it. And that's where he leaves off. Now, while I said a lot about how when we're in pain, to lament, to be real, Job has started to move off of that mark, I hope you see, and is now becoming the one to call God on the carpet and demand that God come and give an answer. He has reduced his relationship with God. Let me put it this way. I already used this word, to a transaction. I talked about this a little bit last week, I think. Like I said, he brought the receipts. He said, here's my good works. Here's how I serve you. Here's how I pray. Here's all the sacrifices I did. I'm a good man. You said it yourself. So what's going on? Why am I being returned all of this garbage? And so just while we're going to get into it more next week, I'm just going to ask this question right now. Is it right? Is it good? Is it safe to bring God down to the teller at the bank? where you can say, because I've done X, I deserve from you Y. And if that doesn't happen, I'm going to come and demand an explanation. We're going to go Karen on God. I want to speak to the manager. What is this? This is not what I ordered at the restaurant. This is not what I put in all the good work for. I've been good. Give me what I deserve. 
now that you and I have the Holy Spirit and the wealth of the scriptures given to us, I hope we understand that if we were to go to God and say, give me what I deserve, God would rightly come down, I think lovingly, and come down to my face, I hope lovingly, and say to me, I'd rather give you my grace. Because what you deserve, you don't actually want. As we were singing, this is a great little moment. I'm going to get the lyrics a little bit wrong, Jewel, but it was, um, we were on the path to hell or something like that. And Joel looked up at me and goes, path to hell? <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, all right. Um, so I got down and I said, hey, man, um, so you, you remember that our sin must be punished by God. And everyone's, therefore, on their way to eternal punishment from God. But because of what Jesus did, we're saved from that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what that's talking about. Oh, okay. Cool. I, I bring that up to just kind of remind us that were it not for the grace of Christ, we've got nothing. Nothing. What, can we, what are we going to do? Oh, I'm forgiven now, so therefore I can demand from God whatever I think. I've, I come every Sunday to church and sing songs about going to hell. Come on, God. I deserve to not have my tire blow out on the way home or to get into an accident or sorry, come up with a list of things that better not happen to me. God is far better than we think he is if we, if we fall into those places in our hearts. We've forgotten who he is, and who we are. He is not some person we can snap our fingers and say, excuse me, waiter, this steak is not well done. <laughs> excuse me, waiter. Okay, why would you be ordering well done? Repent if that's you. But it, you get my point. My life isn't what I wanted. This isn't what I ordered. This isn't what I think I deserve. I'm not siding with the friends, though. Because I don't think we get to, and I think that, I hope this is what... You're hearing from me now. We don't get to tell God what our life ought to be. Paul had some phrases to, talk, to describe that. Can the clay tell the potter, what are you doing? <laughs> can, 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 can we? Can, can the, the art piece that you're painting say, no, nah, no, nah, this isn't what I wanted. <laughs> this is like what I've had to say to my kids and my wife has had to say to her kids, hey, hold on, hold on, stop. Who's in charge here? Who's in charge here? What's going on here? And I love it with my little girl. You. <laughs> and I'll get sometimes more like that with God. You. <laughs> Therefore, I have to accept what's going on here. But what God, I think, is inviting us to, as we'll get into more thoroughly next week, is this. Just trust me. Trust that this will work out. God isn't saying... And see, well, the reason I'm hammering on this point, and you might be thinking, well, that's not how I think of things, Dan, so you don't need to preach at me like this. Let me tell you how dangerous this line of thinking is and how easy it is to slip into. In fact, you may have, some of you may be able to say, yeah, that was me. There have been times where bad things happen, and I looked at God and said, I don't deserve this. I did the good stuff. Why is this happening to me? Can I make it real with you? I had a parent say to me once, we did all the right things, yet my kids still ran from God. I can't imagine that heartbreak. I've, um, 
you know, the Bible says, train them up in the way they should go. Well, I did that. And yet my son, complete apostasy. What do I do? I wish I could agree with many pastors across this land who tell you that if you just do the good works, the things will happen to you that you want. But that's not what the Bible teaches. You can find a lot of churches if you want to that will teach you that. Let's pass the plates again, gentlemen. You throw in a seed of faith. Hallelujah. The Lord will bless you. It will overflow. You've heard those sermons, right? They're on TV a lot. <laughs> and on the internet. They're everywhere. <laughs> Just sow that seed and it will abound. And then there's that lady on the commercial. I was poor. And then I started tithing 20%. Now look at my house. Reducing God to a transaction. Put the coin in, pull the lever, out comes the stuff. Yeah. Some pastors even write books. Your best life now. How do you get it? And when you really get reductionist with these sources, guess what it is? It's all, I do this, God owes me that. God doesn't owe you a single thing. Not a single thing. And yet he abounds in his love and gives us his very self. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't say, I'll make everything in life wonderful, but he says, I'll walk through it with you. Come alongside. Take my yoke upon you. And by the way, yeah, you are a sinner. All you humans are. I'll put my son on the cross to pay for it. How's that? Wow. Just come with me. He doesn't promise to make everything perfect yet. But someday all things will be made right. In the meantime, here we are. And what do we do with it? We trust him. We just trust him. <coughs> if it helps, I always use kid analogies. If it helps, think about the kids in the back of the car. Are we there yet? No. It's taking so long. The journey is hard, is what they're saying. This is not what I signed up for. This is taking forever. When will we get there? But then, hey, dude, just wait. When we get there, you'll forget about all this. And if I understand what the Bible says, there will come a time when we look back at all the stuff that we went through and compare to the eternity with Jesus we'll have and the new heaven, new earth, and the experience of being with him in, in, for eternity, we're going to say that was, that was hard then, but it was worth it to get here. It's worth it to get here. And so I don't mean to minimize your experience. Some of you might be carrying some serious, painful baggage. But I can promise you what the Word of God says. Jesus makes things right. You don't have to, like, fix yourself to make it right. That's the good news. These guys are saying, just repent and everything will be, be better. No, we, we can't repent enough. We ought to repent, but we can't repent enough. And the purpose of your repenting isn't so your life will be right. It, it's to come to Christ with who you are and receive his grace. And he promises to strengthen you for the journey. And someday, things will be made right. He is king, and someday his throne will be upon the earth. And he will rule and make it all right. In the meantime, just trust him. Trust his timing. No one was there to say that to Job, unfortunately. 
But one guy gets closer to the truth than the others. His name is Elihu. And he shows up, and in chapter 32 through 37 provides his point of view. First of all, he rebukes the friends for not being able to answer Job's protests. Then he rebukes Job for putting his righteousness over God's. And that's accurate. He's saying, hey, you're saying all about your just, all about your justice, all about your innocence, and therefore God must be messing up. No, God doesn't mess up. So stop accusing him. So Elihu, he comes in at the end of this cycle, <clears throat> claiming God is good, God is great and good, and he uses pain to punish sin, yes, but also to teach lessons and build character. To summarize his chapters, God is awesome and just. He does operate the world justly, and we are all sinners. And sometimes God uses suffering to warn away from future sin, to teach lessons and build character. So don't accuse him of stuff. Now, and with that, at the end of this, these cycles, the ancient wisdom, it, it ceases. It's expent. The friends are all saying God is good and righteous. God punishes bad people and blesses good people. If you're going through something, you must deserve it. Job saying, God destroyed my life. I don't deserve what he's done to me. So I hope he has a good reason for it. And I want to know that reason. Elihu we all deserve God's discipline, but he chooses what to do and when. And while we don't always understand why we can trust that he's teaching something and or building our character. I hope that last part sounds a little bit familiar. James 1, 2 through 4. Count on all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I hate to deliver what might seem like bad news, but sometimes God uses bad times to make us stronger, to build strength, to face something in the future, to grow your character in such a way that you have been forced to eliminate the idols that you filled your life with and see God clearly and pursue Him alone. Sometimes pain is required. If you accept a working out analogy, you're not going to get strong unless you lift weights with great resistance. It's just not going to happen. You will not, they have a phrase for this, no pain, no gain, right? So if you want the gain, you must accept the pain. So I'm not asking you to go home and pray that God wipes out your funds and your kids, but Maybe we should open our hands and open our hearts to say, God, you want to shape me to be more like Jesus. You must train me. I accept that training. Make me more like Christ. And I recognize that may involve what I would call suffering. But being like Jesus is worth it. Therefore, train me. Mold me, shape me. When we pray things like that and sing that in songs, mold me, shape me after your will, that's what we're saying. And I would love for all of us, united as a church, to be in that place in our hearts. To be ready for God to train us, to grow us, to make us more fruitful. Coming back to Job and his friends. Which one of these point of views are right? I believe Elihu, like I said, is the closest. But here let me give you a few takeaways to end our time together with. Four points of takeaway. Okay, 
Some of this has already been said, so I'll go through this quick. Number one, don't rush to figure out why things happen. Don't rush to figure out why things happen. I know that's comforting. Let's figure out why this happened. Why did that girl break up with me? I remember when I had a four-year relationship coming out of high school. And when it ended, there were people around me who said, well, why did she dump you? Hmm, let's figure it out. And while we have intelligence and we have imaginations and there are some things we can figure out in this world, can we figure out everything? Sometimes things just are. Wisdom falls short. Human wisdom, at least. You'll only find simplistic answers that fall short of the whole picture. The reason I brought up that idea about getting dumped out of high school is because when I got over it, there were people around me who were not over it and trying to figure it out and explain it still after I had gotten over it. And I'm like, guys, I'm okay. Why are you working on this still? Yeah, but it didn't make sense what she said or what you said. You know what? <clears throat> I'm not going to waste another minute on this. I've got a life to live. No, but we need answers. Do we? Really? All the time? Need answers. Again, I bring up kids because we're like kids, and sometimes I can't reason with a four-year-old, and I have to say, hey, look, just trust me, okay? Just, it'll be okay. But she's four, so what does she often ask? Why, 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 why? I get it. We want to know why. But let's not rush to always figure out things. Because to do so, again, is to seek the simplest answer we can arrive at, which is often not the right one. Sometimes we can't see. I don't know if you've ever seen like a tapestry. Maybe some of you have weaved one together or something. And you look at it and it's like a picture. My mom used to do this sometimes where she would do that cross-stitching stuff and, and come up with a picture or somebody's name or something beautiful on this side. Flip it over to the other side. What does it look like on the other side? A mess of yarn. <laughs> it looks horrible. I mean, in fact, if she just came out and said, here, I made this for you, I'd be like, thanks, Mom. What am I going to do with this? This is terrible. If you think about God as making a tapestry, he's weaving something together. But if I'm just stuck on this thread on the back, can I see what he's doing? Absolutely not. And he's saying, trust me, someday I'll show you the other side when you're ready. In the meantime, you just trust me. Just the small part of this thing God is doing. We'll get into that next week. Let's not rush to try to find all the answers. Let's go to God and say, help us to trust you in this. That's number two. Choose instead to trust God's sovereign and good hand. You don't need to know the answers if you know the one who's in charge, the one who's in control. So don't rush into believing he's not in charge. Don't rush into trying to think you can figure it all out. Don't rush at all, except to rush to God to pray. Ask for help. Ask for mercy. Not, God, make this make sense. Again, next week we'll talk about why that's the wrong response. See how I'm, I'm, I'm cliffhangering this message. I'm sorry. More next week. Stay tuned next time. Anyway, number three. Recognize that God uses suffering to help us grow into maturity. So even in the pain, there's something to be thankful for. Now, I'm not saying there's always some kind of, quote, lesson. 
I remember somebody doing that when I was in some kind of emotional pain, and someone said, so Dan, what is God teaching you? Right now, he's teaching me that life stinks. <laughs> I've not learned anything yet. Someday, I hope I will. But sometimes it's not a lesson or a concept, but a trust me more, strengthening me more. That's like I've said, when you're pushing that barbell up and it's making you strong, those aren't lessons, those aren't concepts, it's strengthening you. Sometimes the pain is just strengthening you. It can mean that God is helping you get your priorities right. It doesn't mean always that God's punishing you for something. Sometimes just growth hurts. <clears throat> I never experienced this, but I've seen others that have growing pains where kids, as they suddenly start having those growth spurts and it hurts their legs and it hurts their arms and stuff like that. Sometimes growth is just painful and that happens. So let's recognize that God uses it ultimately for our good. Number four, and finally, and this is what we started the message with, be there for those who are suffering. Let's accept that suffering is part of life. So better than trying to figure out the answers for all of it, let's be there for each other. Let's rush to that. Let's rush not to answer questions, but to provide love and to provide support. God commands us to do this. And much of what Job was going through was hard because he was going through it alone. For a week, he wasn't alone. But then everybody started talking. And then it became an argument that sank him deeper into his depression. Let's be a church family that responds to suffering tangibly, concretely. Let's pray for each other, but let's not just tell each other we'll pray for each other. Let's provide for each other. Let's be there for each other. Let's respond. Let's sit together in our grief, as well as celebrate with our celebrations. <clears throat> I'd like to end a little bit differently, a little bit weird. Okay. Rather than offer a time of meditation, I'd like to offer a time of prayer for all of us who may be going through something. So, here it is. This is going to require some courage, okay? Everybody ready for this? It's going to be hard for some of us, and I grant that and I honor that. I promise you, I am not going to ask for testimonies. I'm not going to ask for stories, not here and not after the service. I encourage all of you to, to honor that as well. But if you are going through a thing right now that's putting you in a place where you can acknowledge to whatever degree I am suffering right now. You know what I mean? I'm not saying like Job. I just mean you've got some stuff going on that's not what you would choose in your life if you were in charge. And it hurts. It makes me sad. 